Welcome to Cases and Controversies, a Supreme Court podcast by Bloomberg Law. I'm Kimberly Robinson. And I'm Jordan Rubin. So we're in March, Jordan, and uh, the Supreme Court is going to kick off arguments at the same time that the Senate is going to kick off hearings for KBJ. That's right. The Senate's trying. Democrats, anyway, want to have her confirmed in time to be able to take over for Breyer at the end of the term because he has that conditional language in his announcement saying he'll step down as long as his successor is confirmed. So the Democrats want to make sure they have that done in time. That's right. And I don't really see, I mean, nothing so far has come up um, that leads me to believe that she will not be confirmed. Anything on your end that you see? No. Um, Of course, we're just setting up now for something crazy to come out at the last minute. Mm -hmm. It would be surprising. I mean, just on paper, the stakes are lower. It's a one-for-one replacement. The Democrats have the votes. Again, given what we've seen in recent nominations, nothing is certain, except for probably the certainty is if you have the votes, you're going to do what you want. And so the Democrats have that. So that's what I'm going with until something new happens. I reserve the right to change my answer, though, if something new comes up. Okay, it's noted. Um, So one of the cases that the court's going to hear is Torres versus the Texas Department of Public Safety. Uh, Jordan, what's going on in this one? Yeah, so Leroy Torres, he was deployed for the military, and he was a state trooper before that, and he came back, and he had some injuries, which we're going to talk about with our guests, stemming from these burn pits. Yeah, that was interesting. I think one of the things that struck me most about when I was um, preparing for this interview was that, like, we don't talk about burn pits until, like, page 30 of their opening brief, right? Because, you know, the Supreme Court's going to be focused on this jurisdictional question. Right. It's not really what it's about, but it is really what it's about. So we'll see if how much that's playing in the background there. Brian Lawler is the founder and shareholder of Pilot Law PC in San Diego. He represents military reservists and guardsmen in employment disputes with their civilian employers. There is an upcoming argument involving one of those disputes in Torres against Texas Department of Public Safety. Brian, thanks for joining us to talk about the case and the issue. Good morning, Jordan. Thanks for having me. So this case involves a law that's a bit of a mouthful. The Uniform Services Employment and Reemployment Rights Act. I think I got that right. Yeah, we, we refer to it as USERRA. Oh, that's better. Okay, good. Yeah, it's much easier. It's not quite as big a mouthful. So, Brian, tell us a bit about this law and your involvement in litigating cases under it. So I was in the Marine Corps, in the active component, for 11 years. Uh, started to go to law school while I was on active duty as an instructor at an F-18 training squadron in uh, Miramar. California. And when I left active duty, I went to the reserve component, um, which was pretty busy. So finished up my law degree while I was in the reserve component and immediately started to hear from colleagues, um, Marine colleagues and Navy colleagues who were reservists, that their civilian employers were somehow denying them various benefits of employment to which they are entitled when they go on their, on their military service. So I'd heard a couple stories uh, a few times. I was working for a firm in Los Angeles at the time doing mostly aviation law, which I still do a little bit of. And when I opened my own practice uh, in 2004, I had a few squadron mates and Marine Corps Navy colleagues who needed some assistance. So our first real big case uh, was a class action, a USERRA class action against Continental Airlines that we filed in 2009. Um, ultimately, we lost that case um, all the way up through the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. 
in New Orleans. I was actually deployed overseas at the time and flew back from deployment to argue that case in New Orleans. I, I worked for an amazing uh, general officer who let me come back to the States and argue that case, knowing how important that was for my civilian job. So we lost that case. It had to do with harassment and discrimination based on military uh, affiliation and service obligations. Um, but it was such a poor decision and it has been widely criticized uh, since it came down in 2011 that Congress rewrote the law and reiterated unequivocally that harassment and discrimination based on military um, affiliation is it's a protected class just like any other uh, anti-discrimination statute. So from that one, um, you know, we licked our wounds and, and, and pressed forward. I've been doing almost exclusively USERRA litigation now for I guess it's going to be about 12 years, 12 or 13 years. And so the Torres case that's coming up for argument at the Supreme Court later this month, can you tell us a little bit about the background as to what's going on there and how it wound up getting to the Supreme Court? Sure, happy to. So Leroy Torres uh, was a Texas state trooper, uh, was also active in the Army Reserve. And in 2007, he was activated uh, and mobilized and deployed to Balad, Iraq. And um, you've probably heard of the, the now infamous burn pits where at all the, uh, all the bases, really, and, and FOBs, forward operating bases, in Iraq, Afghanistan, and other countries in the Middle East, the disposal of basically all the waste that the camps generated were put into these open-air pits that were ex excavated and then set on fire. And those pits would blow indiscriminately based on the wind patterns and oftentimes they would blow into the living um, the living spaces where service members were and as people started to return from theater they had all sorts of odd diseases and ailments that you know, really took a long time to figure out what was causing that or causing them um, so Leroy in his particular case he came home with some with some bad head situation and a a lung disease that was ultimately diagnosed as constrictive bronchiolitis. Uh, and that's pretty debilitating. If you've seen him and interviewed him recently, you'll notice that he's generally wearing oxygen. And he came back and couldn't perform the tasks that a state trooper would necessarily have to perform, you know, running down bad guys and doing things like that. But nonetheless, he still had a right to be employed by the Department of Public Safety and asked for a reasonable accommodation for his condition to do some other less strenuous uh, task while still working for the department. Um, DPS did not make that accommodation and ultimately he left DPS. So we filed suit in May of 2017 under USERRA in Texas state court because USERRA is pretty clear that in an action against a state as an employer, that lawsuit is brought in a state court, not in federal court. The 11th Amendment prohibits that. So we filed suit in Corpus Christi in 2017 and immediately the state of Texas sought to dismiss the suit claiming sovereign immunity. Um, the trial judge in Corpus Christi agreed with us and denied Texas motion to dismiss. Uh, they promptly appealed it and then a divided uh, circuit court of appeals in Texas in a two to one opinion reversed the trial court and said no Texas is immune uh, and not only are we immune but Congress did not have the authority to abrogate our sovereign immunity when they enacted USERRA. So USERRA was enacted in 1994, it's been amended a few times, and one of those amendments in 2001 was specifically to address the filing of lawsuits against state employers in state court. Well, regardless, Texas and now about seven other states 
um, are asserting that they are immune from these suits. We call them the non-consenting states. There are six states right now that consent uh, or have waived their sovereign immunity to lawsuits under USERRA. And then we have somewhere 36, 37, depending on the day, states that are kind of in the, in the middle ground. So anyway, so our suit, um, when we lost at the Texas appellate court level, we petitioned the Texas Supreme Court for review to hear the case. Um, they could have just passed on it. They invited full briefing on the merits, and then they did pass on it, which was kind of surprising to all of us that they would ask for, for briefing on the merits and then pass. So because they did not render an opinion, we were allowed to take the appellate court decision to the Supreme Court. So we did that a few years ago. So one, one issue that um, kind of stuck out to me when I was reading the briefs in this case was, okay, so there's some disagreement about whether states are immune, but what about local governments? I, I mean, are they regularly facing suits uh, related to these? And if so, then what, what is the kind of harm that the states are claiming? Yeah, I, su- I mean, we, we sue, we have plenty of, of lawsuits against local and, and county municipalities and their, their agencies. Um, Law enforcement agencies seem to be some of the worst offenders for whatever reason. Um, the statute's pretty clear. A local uh, or a county municipality and its agencies are sued in federal district court. So those, they don't have an immunity argument and they're not, they're not raising it. The states, however, uh, and private employers are also sued in federal district court. Uh, the federal government as an employer is sued in the Merit Systems Protection Board. Um, so, and those, that too is not a, an issue. So the states now say, unless we've expressly waived our sovereign immunity, you cannot sue us here. I have three other cases currently pending. They're all stayed pending the outcome of the Torres uh, case. One in California, one in Missouri, and another one in Texas, coincidentally, also against DPS for a state trooper, former state trooper. Yeah, yeah. I just, you know, it sticks out to me that all, all other forms of government are being sued um, except states, and so what is it that the, that is really harming the states where they're claiming this sovereign immunity? Yeah, it's 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 interesting, and and you know, the way we phrased it to the trial court, Corpus Christi, and I phrase it to people all the time is, you can't sue a state in federal court. The Eleventh Amendment makes that very clear. USERRA provides to sue a state in state court. Well, the states that are asserting their immunity are saying, well, you can't do that either. And so I said this to the trial judge in Corpus Christi. I said, you know, if Texas gets its way they could violate USERRA at, at will and not be held accountable and in state or federal court. And the trial judge looked at the attorney general's office and said, is that, is that your position? Is that true? And they said, yeah. He said, no, that's not going to work. Um, now, there is a remedy. I mean, let's, let's be clear. There is a, another remedy that a private citizen has if he or she wishes to sue a state as his or her employer, and that is to file a complaint through the Department of Labor And then if DOL finds that there is merit to the claim, DOL can, at the service member's request, refer it to Department of Justice for enforcement. And justice would sue the state in federal court on behalf of the United States government. The problem is justice doesn't do that very often. And and they have discretion whether to do it. It's not a very high percentage. Whereas if that person, um, the aggrieved service member, comes to private counsel, that's 100% opportunity for a lawyer to look at it. Now, that's not to suggest that 100% of those cases are, are, are litigated. I turn them down all the time, but that's the, that's the difference. So that's not really a viable option. I mean, it's in the statute, but when you look at the numbers, the amount of uh, cases that justice actually takes on behalf of private citizens is very small. 
So, Brian, you mentioned you have some related cases that are on hold pending the outcome of this. I'm wondering even beyond that, whether you can speak to the scope of the impact of the court's eventual decision here in terms of how many people it might affect and really as someone who's steeped in the issue and this law, what could really happen here at the court? So for Leroy Torres specifically, if we are successful on March 29th, this will be, um, I've used this analogy before, this is a, a hurdle for him, not a finish line, because we still have to go to Corpus Christi and try his case and ideally win his case. But for the, we we and the Reserve Organization of America, by the way, is, um, is the congressionally chartered lobby group on behalf of reserve and guard personnel. They have been unwavering in their support, not only for uh, this case, but for the cause for, for veterans and actively serving reserve and guard personnel. They estimate that there are tens of thousands of service members actively serving reserve and guard personnel who are employees of various states and state agencies. So what we're asking the Supreme Court to do is simply level the playing field. You can't have six consenting states, now whatever it is, seven or eight non-consenting states, and that's a variable number because some of the ones in the middle now come out, like Missouri was, was not really vocal. They didn't have a statute or, a, uh, or any case law that said we're immune, but recently in the case that I have, they asserted the exact same arguments Texas is asserting. So we're asking the Supreme Court to put this to bed, level the playing field, and, and state unequivocally that a service member employed by a state agency has the right to sue that state agency in state court. Well, I mean, it seems odd that we're 20 minutes into this and we haven't talked about the war, war powers yet, um, which is, you know, what the whole case is about. Um, so can you tell us how that kind of fits into um, or how this case is framed in that way? Yeah, the, the, the war powers, you know, if, if you've read the brief, you can see that we have citations all the way back to the Constitutional Convention, uh, the Federalist Papers, Alexander Hamilton, James Madison are all cited in our brief. Uh, standing for the proposition that because Congress enacted USERRA pursuant to its war powers, and USERRA is the last in, in a line of several um, similar statutes going back to 1940 when, you know, just before World War II started, because so many reservists uh, and guardsmen and women were called up for World War II. So this long progeny of statutes protecting reserve and guard service members it goes back to Congress' authority to raise and maintain an army and a navy. And it is our position that because this statute was enacted under the war powers, Congress does have the right to abrogate states' sovereign immunity in furtherance of the national defense, something that only Congress has the right to do. The federal government has the right to do that. And it gets even a little more intricate because not only do we assert the position that Congress had the right to, to abrogate the immunity by, by enacting USERRA, but the states themselves consented to it back in the 1780s as what we're calling the plan of the convention. So they, they knew and understood that certain things to which they were agreeing and signing up for back in the 1780s um, as necessary as part of the, you know, the ratification of the Constitution. They explicitly or tacitly agreed that they were going to waive um, immunity under certain, certain parts, parts of the Constitution. And this being one of them, war powers being one of them. Yeah, I thought um, you had a paragraph in your brief or really a sentence that talked about all the things that um, can be done under the war powers. And it, it, it strikes me that those are pretty sweeping um, and 
kind of brings in a, a totally different and separate um, case about, you know, um, that's playing out in the Fifth Circuit now about vaccine mandates and what it is that, um, you know, courts can force the military to do. So I guess I'm I'm just wondering, you know, you talk about how the war powers are really broad. What is the kind of the line then that that I mean, is it all encompassing? Congress can do anything or is this kind of uh, state immunity? Is that really the line? Well, for our case, that's the line, and I don't want to speak to anything broader than that. I'm, you know, it's not part of our argument. It's not something I'm, I'm um, you know, well-read enough on to, to even even say. Um, with respect to our case, we're saying, yes, certainly the waiver of sovereign immunity from uh, private lawsuits under USERRA was part of uh, was part of what the, what the states signed up for. Obviously, USERRA wasn't enacted in the 1780s, but we're taking that argument from then to now and saying, well, you, you know, you agree to all these things, when you signed up for and ratified the Constitution. So therefore, you're not immune from these lawsuits. And so, Brian, on this issue, kind of taking a step back, um, just given that you're involved in so many of these cases, I mean, does the political aspect of this never come into play at all from the state's point of view in the sense that obviously, you know, governments will always want to do what they want to do to avoid any type of legal liability for anything. But I mean, we're talking about people who served the country, right? You would like to think so. You know, the, the USERA in, the, in my practice is is generally viewed as bipartisan. I mean, we don't, I don't care particularly as much. Um, most of my cases are in federal court. Obviously, this one's in state court, and a few of them are against the state agencies. But I really don't have much skin in the game with respect to a judge that I have on a case, whether he or she was appointed by a Republican or Democrat. It doesn't really follow those sorts of party lines that a lot of other cases do because service members' rights and um, remedies are, are generally viewed favorably on both sides of the aisle. Um, one, of the, one of the things that we thought was interesting and then some of our, our Texas uh, colleagues when the Supreme Court, when the Texas Supreme Court passed on, on hearing the case, there were some chuckles from our Texas colleagues like, yeah, you're probably not going to get a Texas Supreme Court to issue an opinion against the state of Texas. That's just the way Texas is. I've never lived there, but I'm told from our colleagues that they could see that one coming a mile away. The Texas Supreme Court was not going to touch it. Um, and in the second case, the second Texas case I have also against DPS, we are at the appellate court level, but we haven't briefed it yet because clearly whatever the Supreme Court does on March 29th, the Texas appellate court's going to have to follow. So there's no sense in briefing and arguing these cases when we're going to get the definitive answer, answer in uh, in March. Well, yeah, that was interesting. I think, but really interesting, I think that Texas is making this argument that not, you know, it's pretty clear from the statute that it seems like Congress is like amending it and making it easier for people to sue. And this is clearly what Congress wants. But like Texas saying, Congress doesn't even have the authority to do it. It brings into mind some of these um, ideas about major questions and non-delegation and stuff that the court's working through in other, in other contexts. So. Cannot get away from this stuff. A through line. Indeed. To check up on all those through lines, you can follow us at news.bloomberglaw.com. You ever thought to yourself, how is that legal? Why is that legal? You ever seen a big trial in the news and wondered, what's really happening there? Have you ever pondered the question, why are lawyers the way that they are, and how much money do they really make anyway? These are the things we live and breathe at On The Merits, Bloomberg Law's weekly legal news podcast. On The Merits looks into the biggest stories playing out in the legal industry right now 
and we feature the finest journalists covering the biggest legal stories from across the Bloomberg Law newsroom. On the Merits is hosted by me, David Schultz, and you can hear wherever fine podcasts are found. Thanks for listening.